You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mother's Day was this past Sunday. If you're hoping to hear about Anna Jarvis, who championed the creation of a national holiday to honor mothers, then spoke staunchly against it when it became commercialized, you may have to check out a different podcast. We'll be using the timing of this episode to talk about bandaged bodies, those preserved, passed on, the desiccated decedents, mummies. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. When you hear the word mummy, the mind usually goes to images of the sarcophagus of King Tut or Boris Karloff wrapped in linen shambling after his co-stars. That's the very reason we won't be devoting much of today's broadcast to man-made mummies of Egypt. Ancient Egypt knew its business when it came to preserving their dead. There's no two ways about it. While the earliest Egyptian specimen we found dates to 3000 BCE, The oldest anthropogenically modified mummy, which is to say a body that someone intentionally preserved through drying, dates back approximately 5,000 years in the high, dry, cold mountains of South America. Even older still is a natural mummy found in the Atacama Desert in modern-day Chile. That person is believed to have died in the year 7,020 BCE, over 9,000 years ago. The Atacama Desert is an ideal place for the creation of mummies, as it gets less than an inch of rain annually. More about that later. Egyptian mummies are the best well-known in the world owing to a combination of supply and demand. By some estimates, over the course of three millennia, more than 70 million people and animals were mummified. They were so prevalent and trees so scarce that people were known to burn them as fuel. This may have led Mark Twain to write in The Innocents Abroad, I shall only say that the fuel they use for the locomotive is composed of mummies 3,000 years old, purchased by the ton or by the graveyard for that purpose, and that sometimes one hears the profane engineer call out pettishly, Damn these plebeians, they don't burn worth a cent. Pass us a king. Twain continued parenthetically, stated to me for a fact, I can only tell it as I got it, I'm willing to believe it, I can believe anything. People seem to have lost track of that last part because it was widely taken as fact for a while. That's the supply side of it. The demand came after Napoleon's Egyptian campaign at the turn of the 19th century. Militarily, the campaign would eventually fail but scientifically, it could be said to have been a success. It was during that campaign that the Rosetta Stone was found, which gave us our first leg up on translating the picture language of hieroglyphics. In addition to soldiers and assorted retinue, 
Napoleon brought along more than 500 civilians, including about 150 biologists, mineralogists, linguists, mathematicians, chemists, and other scholars. Part of his mission was to make himself a second Alexander the Great. Another part was to catalog every aspect of Egypt, to educate Europe on this topic that had held such fascination for him personally. That was how people on the continent and in Victorian Britain caught what would later be called Egyptomania. Mummies were considered quite gothic. Gothic in this sense obviously doesn't mean black lipstick and the cure. The word gothic was used by Romans to describe anything not Roman and therefore belonging to the barbarian. The word carried over through the years and civilizations and referred specifically to certain kinds of literature and architecture and broadly to anything foreign and exotic. In Victorian England, when gothic meant cool, unwrapping mummies was a must-have for any self-respecting party host. People would bring back or buy mummies from Egypt and have unwrapping parties. Invitations to such have survived, saying things like, Come to Lord Longberry's at 2 p.m. Piccadilly for the unwrapping of a mummy from Thebes, champagne and canapes to follow. Mummy unwrappings as a social event really took off in the 1820s, courtesy of a circus performer turned antiquity salesman named Giovanni Belzoni. Belzoni made a name for himself in Egypt-obsessed, self-proclaimed scholar circles after arranging for the removal of several massive Egyptian artifacts on behalf of the British consul. He held a public mummy unwrapping as part of an exhibition on Egyptian antiquities near Piccadilly Circus. The event proved an enormous success. Over 2,000 people attended on opening day alone. One member of the audience was London surgeon and scholar Thomas Pettigrew, who was so enamored of the spectacle he began holding his own public, ticketed unwrappings with accompanying lecture. Between his lecture and his book, A History of Egyptian Mummies, he earned the nickname Mummy Pettigrew. Members of the upper class copied Pettigrew, and the idea spread with unwrapping events held at both large public venues and in private homes. Consider it the Victorian version of unboxing. While there was occasionally an element of serious science, the gawk factor was usually the big draw. Not only were the mummies themselves fascinating, their wrappings often contained valuable talismans and amulets lying in and around the body. Heart scarabs attracted particular attention and tomb robbers knew where they were located, leaving behind themselves a trail of desecrated mummies with big holes in their chests. A great many mummies were lost because people didn't really think of them as artifacts or even as human beings deserving of respect. In addition to bringing mummies to Europe, trips to Egypt were so popular among the upper class of the 19th century that mummies were often displayed back home as souvenirs usually in the drawing room or study, and occasionally even in the bedroom. Hands, feet, and heads were frequently displayed around the house, often in glass domes or on mantelpieces. The writer Gustave Flaubert was even known to keep a mummy's foot on his desk. Mummies were displayed at businesses, too. One Chicago candy store reportedly attracted customers in 1886 by showing off a mummy said to be Quote, Pharaoh's daughter who discovered Moses in the rushes.
People found other uses for mummies beyond entertainment through the centuries. Starting around the 16th century, a paint called Mummy Brown hit the market and was a popular choice for European artists. Truth in advertising, it really was made from ground-up mummies. According to scholar Philip Macau, in 1712, quote, an artist's supply shop rather jokingly called A la Momet opened in Paris, selling paints and varnish as well as powdered mummy, incense, and myrrh. To be fair, not everyone knew what they were painting with. When artist Edward Byrne Jones found out, he held a little funeral for a tube of paint in his backyard. Mummies weren't labeled for external use only, either. According to historian Richard Sugg, quote, up until the late 18th century, the human body was a widely accepted therapeutic agent. The most popular treatments involved flesh, bone, or blood, along with a variety of moss sometimes found on human skulls. Mummy, often sold as mummia, was applied to the skin or powdered and mixed into drinks as a treatment for bruising and other ailments. The belief may have come from the ancients like Pliny the Elder, who wrote that the bitumen used to embalm mummies offered healing powers. Shug says that adherents included King Francis I of France, who kept a pouch of powdered mummy on his belt and ate rhubarb and mummy powder every day because he thought it would keep him strong and safe from assassins, as well as Francis Bacon, who wrote that mummy has great force in staunching of blood. Mummia became such big business that there was a trade in fake mummies. These poultices and potions were still made from humans, but more easily attainable ones, such as executed criminals, slaves, or beggars, to keep up with the demand, like today's market for counterfeit pharmaceuticals. Animals were mummified by the millions in ancient Egypt to provide offerings to their pantheon of gods and goddesses. Cat mummies were particularly plentiful, so plentiful in fact that in the late 19th century, English companies bought them from Egypt for agricultural purposes. By one account, a single company purchased about 180,000 cat mummies weighing 19 tons, which were then pulverized into fertilizer and spread on the fields of England. One of the skulls from that shipment now resides at the Natural History Department of the British Museum. Europe didn't only import mummies, it made mummies of its own. The Catacombe de Cappuccini in Sicily are burial chambers that were used from about 1599 to the 1920s. Originally intended only for monks, the catacombs quickly filled with status-seeking locals. Bodies were dehydrated on ceramic pipes and then washed with vinegar. Some of the mummies are posed, some are wearing clothing, while others are partially covered with a simple sheet. At last count, there are some 1,252 mummies in the catacombs and close to 7,000 additional skeletons. The most famous resident is little Rosalia Lombardo, who died at age two in 1920. Thanks to a secret embalming technique, Rosalia is so remarkably well-preserved that she looks like she could sit up at any moment. Visitors to the catacombs claim to have seen her eyes open and close, but that's been proven to be a trick of the light. For more on Rosalia and other iconic corpses, funeral practices around the world, and what's happening in the modern American funeral industry, 
I cannot recommend highly enough checking out the YouTube channel Ask a Mortician with Caitlin Doty. You should definitely also check out her first book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and other stories from the crematory. If you're not a proponent of natural burial before checking out Caitlin Doty, you probably will be afterwards. Not decaying is a big deal in Catholic parts of Europe and the wider world. A natural and therefore miraculous absence of decay is one of the criteria for being canonized or declared a saint. It's referred to as incorruptibility. The rules for what does and does not qualify as incorruptibility are almost impossible to determine. St. Anthony of Padua, for example, is considered incorrupt, despite the fact that the only part of him that did not decompose was his tongue, which was removed and displayed in a reliquary. Many of the bodies have since been reduced to bone. Decomposition sets in quickly after they were removed from the conditions that had naturally preserved the bodies. Churches boasting the bodies of incorrupt saints would draw pilgrims and their tithes, but to give the pilgrim something more pleasant to look at than a skeleton in a habit, many were covered with or replaced by wax effigies. Some female saints, like St. Catherine of Siena, have had their incorruptible status removed in recent years when examination of the body showed evidence of organ removal, bodies stuffed with fillers, and resin applied to the skin. Why weren't these obvious-sounding things noticed before? Owing to a traditional sense of modesty, the bodies were only examined as much as would be considered decent. With an enhanced modern understanding of the chemistries of decomposition and preservation, the Vatican no longer considers incorruptibility a miracle, downgrading it to a favorable sign when considering canonization. Natural mummies are a widespread phenomenon, appearing all over the globe wherever conditions are favorable, such as places that are very cold, extremely dry, or even highly alkaline. You're probably on a first-name basis with the best-known, Utsi, the Iceman. When his body was first found in 1991 on the Utsul Mountains which run between Austria and Italy, the people that found him thought they'd stumbled on an ill-fated mountaineer. They never dreamed that this body, which still had visible tattoos, was 5,300 years old. Utsi offers an unprecedented view to the life of Copper Age Europe. There was deer and goat meat in his belly, as well as grain that would likely have been bread. Pollen on and in the body tells us he died in the spring or early summer. Utsi had a total of 61 tattoos, inked with soot or ash in groups of parallel lines running along his body, on either side of his spine, on his right knee and ankle, and parallel lines around the left wrist with more lines on his legs. High levels of both copper particles and arsenic were found in Utsi's hair. This, along with his copper axe blade, which is 99.7% pure copper, have led scientists to speculate that Utsi was involved in copper smelting. He was so well-preserved by his icy coffin that his DNA survived well enough for analysis. As fate would have it, science was able to track down modern relatives living in Austria. Also frozen in ice, but much more elaborately tattooed, is a mummy known as the Siberian Ice Princess. 
the remains of this immaculately dressed woman, approximately 25 years of age and preserved for two and a half millennia in the permafrost, were discovered in 1993. Buried around her were six horses, saddled and bridled, her spiritual escorts to the next world and a symbol of her apparent status. Archaeologists believe that she may have been a healer or a holy woman rather than royalty, though the Ice Princess moniker has stuck. Her burial site also contained a meal of sheep and horse meat, ornaments made from felt, wood, bronze, and gold, a small container of cannabis, and a stone plate on which were the burned seeds of coriander. She was dressed in a long shirt made from Chinese silk, which was more expensive than gold during her lifetime, and a sign of true wealth. In typical burials of the Paziric people, men and women were buried together, but the Ice Princess was buried alone. A man's grave was nearby, but not close enough to be called one burial site. Her separate burial might signify celibacy, which was typical for their holy women. She had no weapons buried with her, which means she could not have been among the noble warrior woman class. Compared to all tattoos found by archaeologists around the world, those on the mummies of Puziric people are the most complicated and the most beautiful, says Dr. Natalia Polismak, who discovered the Ice Princess. It is a phenomenal level of tattoo art, incredible. Where Utsi only had lines, the princess had both arms covered with tattoos of animals, in large, bold designs, which can still be seen as clear as day on her leathery skin. Her lines are cleaner than a fair number of modern tattoos I've seen. Pro tip, if you get a $20 tattoo in someone's kitchen, you deserve what you get. Looking at you, first department boyfriend. The Paziric had something of a language of animal imagery, used to express one's thoughts or to define one's position in society and in the world. The more tattoos that were on the body, the longer the person had lived and the higher their position. Whereas Paziric warriors had tattoos on their legs, backs, and arms, the princess had her shoulders down to her hands tattooed, which makes hers one of the earliest tattoo sleeves ever recorded. Her tattoo imagery consisted of a deer with a griffin beak and Capricorn antlers on her shoulder, and the mouth of a spotted panther with the legs of a sheep on her arm, as well as a deer head on her hand. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Ice isn't the only way to keep a body from rotting. Bog bodies, or bog people, are the naturally preserved human corpses found in the sphagnum and peat bogs in the British Isles and Northern Europe. Conditions in the bog are anathema to the microbes that break down bodies, including highly acidic water, low temperatures, and a lack of oxygen. They're practically pickled. Opposite to what might happen to a body above ground, the skin and flesh are preserved tanned almost black, but their bones are generally not, as the acid in the peat dissolves the calcium phosphate of bone. This contributes to the squished nature of many of the specimens, that and the weight of the bog itself. The vast majority of the bog bodies that have been discovered date from the Iron Age, a period of time when the peat bogs covered much larger area of northern Europe than they do now. Many of these Iron Age bodies bear a number of similarities, indicating a known cultural tradition of killing and depositing these people in a certain manner. Archaeologist P. V. Glob believes that these are, quote, offerings to the gods of fertility and good fortune. Others speculate, based on clear references to the practice in writings by Roman historian Tacitus, that the bog bodies were executed criminals rather than religious sacrifices. The bog people did trade with Rome, but were independent of its rule. Many bog bodies show signs of being stabbed, bludgeoned, hanged, strangled, or beheaded. There are exceptions to every rule, and not all bog bodies date to the Iron Age. The oldest known bog body is that of the Kolbjörg woman who was found in Denmark and has been dated to 8000 BCE during the Stone Age. Another body that of Minibradi woman found in Ireland dates to the 16th century AD. Her burial site is an unhallowed ground. There was no evidence of violence in her death and nothing was buried with her, leading to speculation that she may have committed suicide and was therefore buried in the bog rather than in a churchyard because she had committed a Christian sin. The U.S. state of Florida has also created bog bodies. The peat at the Florida sites is loosely consolidated and much wetter than that of the European bogs. As a result, the skeletons are well preserved, but skin and most internal organs have not been. An exception to that is the preserved brains that have been found in nearly 100 skulls in Windover Archaeological Site and one skull at Little Salt Spring. These skeletons are the remains of people buried in peat between 5,000 and 8,000 years ago, during the early and middle archaic period in the Americas. 
There are even 20th century bog bodies, those of Russian and German soldiers killed fighting in the Eastern Front of World War I, specifically in the Masurian Lake District region of northeastern Poland. One of the most heavily relied upon preservatives in the world, salt, has also given us natural mummies. Half a dozen mummies have been found in a salt mine in Iran. The first salt mummy, dated to 300 CE, was discovered in 1993, sporting a long white beard, iron knives, and a single gold earring. In 2004, another mummy was discovered 50 feet away, followed by another in 2005, and an adolescent boy mummy later that same year. The oldest of the salt men found is truly ancient and has been carbon dated to 9550 BCE. Archaeologists flocked to Cherabad, located some 210 miles northwest of the country's capital of Tehran. The tiny village in the province of Sanjen, with a population of approximately 378, soon became a place of great interest. Perhaps the most interesting find was the first one, in which a head of gray hair was discovered by accident, together with a left leg with a shoe still on. This first salt mummy was a man in his late 30s or early 40s, found to have his face crushed in. His death is not thought to be murder, because where there are mines, there are cave-ins, and people in this area had been mining salt for thousands of years. The man's iron knife and gold earring support the theory that he was a person of some importance and not just a simple miner. The head has been transferred to the National Museum of Iran, while five more remains were exhibited in the Zanjin Archaeological Museum. Unfortunately, due to inadequate preservation, some of the mummified remains have been damaged. A report conducted in 2009 states that the plexiglass case in which the salt men were exhibited was not hermetically sealed, allowing bacteria to infiltrate and begin to damage the mummies. Luckily, the report also says that everything appears to be under control now and further deterioration has been halted. While five salt men are on display in museums, the sixth and final one remains in situ, half stuck in the mountain of salt. As of 2008, Iran's Ministry of Industries and Mines has cancelled the mining permit for the Chiribad salt mine and declared the site an archaeological research center so that more work can be done to look for and preserve other salt men. If you've heard any unusual noises in the background of today's podcast, that would be our foster puppy, Arya. She's an adorable little fawn pit bull or Amstaff that came to us from Bragg, Bully Rescue and Advocacy Group, whose mission is not only to rescue ring dog breeds, and of course, any dog who needs them, but also to educate people about how truly wonderful these dogs are. Honestly, I haven't met a bad pit bull yet. I've met a lot of crappy people, but no bad pit bulls. Head on over to their website, braginc.org, B-R-A-G-I-N-C dot O-R-G, if you're not in the position to adopt one of these dogs, please spread the word, open your home to being a foster, or please consider donating. Let's save the world one wonderful dog at a time. 
Salt is one way to desiccate tissue, but no salt is needed in the high Andes mountains and the Atacama Desert that lies between them and the sea. The children of Yoyoyako are three Incan child mummies discovered in 1999 by Dr. Johan Reidhardt and his archaeological team near the summit of Mount Yoyoyako, a 6,700-meter or 22,000-foot stratovolcano in the Andes. The children were sacrificed in an Incan religious ritual referred to as Capacocha, which is believed to have taken place around the year 1500. In this ritual, the three children were drugged and allowed to freeze on top of the mountain and were then moved to a small chamber one and a half meters or about five feet beneath the ground. According to Dr. Reinhardt, the mummies appear to be the best preserved Incan mummies ever found, and other archaeologists have expressed the same opinion, calling them among the best preserved mummies in the world. Yoyoyako is located in the Atacama Desert, the driest non-polar desert on Earth. Dryness and cold temperatures are both major reasons for the excellent preservation of these mummies for 500 years. The child sacrifice was an important part of the Incan religion and was often used to commemorate important events, as offerings to the gods in times of famine or difficulty, and as a way of asking for protection. Sacrifice could only occur with the direct approval from the emperor. Children were chosen from all over the vast Incan land. They were generally sons and daughters of nobles and local rulers, but were picked primarily because of their physical perfection. They were then taken hundreds or thousands of miles to the capital of Cusco, where they were the subject of important purification rituals. For up to a year, they were well fed and cared for, giving up a potato-based diet for one rich in meat. They would be given coca leaves and alcohol before being taken to the high mountaintop. According to traditional Incan belief, children who are sacrificed do not truly die, but instead watch over the land from their mountaintop alongside their ancestors, and thus being chosen for sacrifice was a great honor. The mummies were in exceptional condition when found, right down to the individual hairs on their arms. The internal organs were still intact, and one of the hearts still contained frozen blood. Because the mummies froze before dehydrating, the desiccation and shriveling of the organs that's typical of exposed human remains never took place. The children of Yuyulako have been the subject of controversy regarding the rights of indigenous people. Rogelia Guanaco of the Indigenous Association of Argentina called the display a violation of our loved ones, saying that Urulaco continues to be a sacred place for us. Researchers should never have profaned that sanctuary, and they should not put our children on exhibition as if in a circus. Fairman Tolabo, chief of the Yule people, says that the mummies should have stayed in their territory and now that the mummies are already exhumed, the museum would have to return them. It is not good that the museum is earning money with that, charging an admission for something that doesn't belong to them. The High Andes region from which the mummies were taken is believed to be home to at least 40 other similar ritual burial sites. However, in order to have good relations with the indigenous people, 
no more mummies will be removed from the area, according to Gabriel Miermont, the designer and director of the Museum of High Altitude Archaeology, which hosts the exhibit displaying the children. Bonus fact, even the animals native to the Andes have trouble dealing with the high altitude, thin air, and dry conditions. Llamas and alpacas are prone to spontaneous abortion, or babies called cria that die shortly after birth. These cria will dry out like anything else in the environment. And they are so common that the dried crias are an important ingredient in folk medicine. It's also believed that a buried llama fetus on a construction site will help to keep the workmen safe. Some preserved bodies are not focal points for scientific research or cultural or religious appreciation. They serve as a stark memento mori, something that says, Remember, thou art mortal. Climbing Mount Everest is the greatest physical challenge mankind has set for itself, as evinced by the number of people who die every year in the attempt. Of the dead, more than 200 are still on the mountain. It's simply too difficult and too dangerous to try to retrieve them. The air is so thin that even with supplemental oxygen, every minute you spend above 26,000 feet, what's known as the death zone, you're basically dying. The best many can hope for is to be dragged away from the main track to rest somewhere more private or to be covered with a blanket or a flag. The oldest body on the mountain belongs to famed climber George Mallory, who died in 1924, but wasn't found until 1999. It's still uncertain whether he and his climbing partner had actually made it to the summit. The dead are not only stark reminders of mortality for other climbers, but they've come to serve as grisly landmarks. Probably the most famous of these bodies is called Green Boots, for the day-glow climbing boots worn by what is thought to be the body of Swang Palyor, a member of an Indian team who perished along with two of his colleagues in the 1996 Everest disaster. Green boots can be seen by every climber attempting the Northeast Ridge route to the summit. In a cave nearby is the body of British climber David Sharp, who died sitting up with his hands draped over his knees as if he had just stopped to catch his breath. He, like a lot of other Everest bodies, had been climbing without supplemental oxygen. All of the mummies we've talked about today had one thing in common. They were all dead before the mummification process began. The same can't be said for Buddhist monks who practice Shokushinbutsu. Shokushinbutsu is a self-mummification that was practiced by Buddhist monks in the Yamagata prefecture in the 11th through 19th centuries. The key element to the process is diet. These Japanese ascetics would eat things like nuts, berries, pine needles, tree bark and resin, and nothing else. Over time, the diet would become even more restrictive, starving the body of nutrients and eliminating the fat and moisture that can encourage a body to decay. Beyond the weight loss, some aspects of the diet may have helped with the preservation of the body, as certain herbs and toxic cycad nuts may have inhibited bacterial growth. Some sokushinbutsu have been said to have drunk a tea made from yurushi, the sap of a plant that's used to make lacquer. 
In addition to facilitating vomiting and further dehydrating them, the urushi may have functioned as a sort of embalming fluid, rendering the body toxic to potential flesh-eating invaders. Once the ascetic was prepared to attempt to become Sokushimbutsu, it said he would step into a tiny burial chamber and have himself buried alive, with a small opening to allow air inside. He would then sit, chanting sutra and ringing a bell to signal that he was still alive. Once the bell stopped ringing, the chamber would be completely sealed. And after three years, it would be opened again to see if the attempt at self-mummification was successful. Changing mores and laws have meant that not all successful shokusenbutsu were enshrined. When the priest and ascetic Bukai Shonin died in 1903, he was interned and supposed to be exhumed after three years, but exhumation was illegal in Japan at that time. When Bukai was eventually exhumed, it was in 1961 by a team of researchers, who found he was indeed well-preserved. Taoist practitioners of self-mummification saw the practice not as a suicide, but as a path to immortality, and similarly, the Sokushinbutsu saw the process as a transcendence rather than death. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But we haven't run out of mummies, not at all. Honestly, I added as many bullet points as I deleted while I was researching this script. Death is the great leveler, but what happens to us next sets us apart. For some of us, fame only comes long after death, like Soap Man, a 19th century Philadelphian whose coffin filled with alkaline water, turning his fatty tissue into a soap-like substance, or Elmer McCurdy, a famed Wild West bandit who was super-preserved by a local undertaker, bought by a showman under false pretenses and put on display for a nickel a peak, changed hands several times, and eventually found himself mistaken for a mannequin and used in a haunted house set for the Six Million Dollar Man TV show. Well, hope springs eternal. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word dongle. Dongle. Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.